It's time for security now. Steve Gibson's here. He's going to explain the internet outage that happened last week. It turns out it was just an accident, but it could be a portent of things to come. That and all the security news next with Security Now. Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for Security Now is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 469, recorded August 19th, 2014. Big routing tables. Security Now is brought to you by ProXPN. ProXPN is a virtual private network that allows you to use the Internet the way it's supposed to be, anonymously and without oversight. Save 50% off with a 12-month subscription. Go to ProXPN.com slash twit and use the code SN50 at checkout. And by IT Pro TV. Are you looking to upgrade your IT skills or prepare for certification? IT Pro TV offers engaging and informative tutorials streamed to your Roku, computer, or mobile device for 30% off the lifetime of your account. Go to ITPro.tv slash security now and use the code SN30. It's time for Security Now, the show that protects you and uh, your loved ones online, your privacy, and all that stuff. Here he is. Our protector-in-chief, Mr. Stephen Tiberius Gibson, the uh, man in charge at the GRC.com. He's the creator of Spinrite and uh, been doing this show for a few years. Yes, today is our ninth anniversary and thus the beginning of our tenth year. So this is actually an anniversary. It actually is. It was was 8-19-2005. Wow. That you and I sat down over Skype and did our first number one, Security Now number one. Very awesome. And, yeah. Yeah. And of course you had and this was the second podcast. You had Twit, the big the big flagship Sunday show. And uh and you and I had talked about it months before when we were um in Toronto. Um and I guess then we were doing them. Remember I would like bring up the Heil mics and we'd sort of do an ad yeah. hoc yeah. Uh, deal in, in uh, both in Toronto and then in Vancouver. Yeah, I had a Mark of the Unicorn uh, uh, mixing board, little portable uh, firewire mixer, and yeah. uh, we'd hook up the mics. We even did one in a cafe, I think. I think. <laughs> I'd rustle the papers. I had stuff yeah. printed out and we'd, yeah. you know, yeah. Those oh, were those were the days. Ah, yeah. Well, we're, I'm so glad we're still doing it. And, of course, the subject has exploded. Um, your show has actually grown faster than any of our other shows over the ten years. Well, and it's interesting too because I'm hearing um, uh, you and Mike and like other of your podcasts referring to security issues, and I realized, I mean, it is—it's a topic that really has legs. It's, I mean, not only just for focused special interest but i mean just in general that it, it's something that affects people more than ever now yeah frankly yeah um, i'm sure we'll be talking about a few security topics today well, so yeah today's topic is big routing tables which sort of pushed itself to the forefront because the the the, the reason last pass had problems that we 
discussed last Tuesday. We were talking about the last pass outage. It turns out it, it and what we knew at the time was one of their data centers went down. Well, it turns out that eBay and Twitter and a number of other major sites were having intermittent problems. And we now know we we know generically why, but we also know specifically what ISP pushed the wrong button that actually caused a major problem throughout the entire internet and why. So I thought it's just a it's a perfect opportunity to to do sort of one of our our fundamental technology podcasts, which are always popular. Uh, we've never explicitly talked about the border gateway protocol and big iron routers. We, we, we talk a lot about residential routers, you know, the little blue plastic boxes that we all have. But and, and, and we've talked in the past about routing on the Internet. So we'll do we'll sort of we'll we'll reestablish some of that background. But then I want to talk about the the consequence of the way that internet has evolved which was not foreseen by the brilliant developers only what wasn't foreseen was that it was going to be this popular i mean they just they made some assumptions that were brilliant which have have really withstood the test of time some modifications have been made to sort of adapt to the way the net has grown but the, the sort of the organic barnacles which are which have, have occurred have have resulted in routing becoming substantially more complex than it really should have or might have and then this also affects IPv6 in the future because because sort of in in good and bad ways. So we've got a great podcast to talk about sort of the fundamental technology of internet routing and looking at the sort of retrospectively what we've learned and what has happened over sort of history. Uh, and of course, some interesting news. It turns out uh, some another presentation which will be happening at the Usenix conference occurring um, I guess it's next week down in San Diego, is uh, some researchers found another way of sneaking audio out of a room, even though there are no microphones on. We talked about the bit, the bag of potato chips or the tree <laughs> yeah. shaking and showed that. Turns out there's there's another sneaky way to do it, which users can't block until uh, until v- vendors fix that problem, and then they probably will be able to. Some... Some interesting legislation in Delaware, um, uh, uh, a site that is tracking information leakage, a welcome option in Java. Um, and I wanted to talk a little bit about my newfound appreciation for the difficulty of writing really secure software, having emerged from the the crypto portion of Squirrel. And, and I, I understand I, and sort of pity people who who really have to do it right because boy is our environment hostile to doing it right. Interesting, yeah, lots so to come. Great, yeah, great podcast. And I thought we'd change our album art. You know, we uh, we've been around oh. ten years. It's time to get a little uh, different picture of you on the uh, cover. So we uh, thank <laughs> Jeremy C. Waldecker for this 
Um, something's wrong with this picture. I described it as deeply disturbing. <laughs> uh, it's it's a it's a take on the picture uh, we've talked about before of you and me as uh, number one and number two on the bridge of Star Trek: The Next Generation. And I did post it on the Security Now page at GRC. That's where Jeremy found it. He he, he somebody else did the photoshopping, which put you and and me in the bodies. Of Kirk and Riker, uh, not Kirk, Picard, Picard and, and, Riker, yeah, and, yeah. and Riker on on the, on the next generation's Enterprise. But now that now something's gone wrong. Worf is saying in the background, uh, the transporter's acting very strange. Oh no! And yes. there's been a mix-up in the factory. I uh... yes, it's what happens. <laughs> what happens when the transporter malfunctions? You'd look good with my hair. I wish I had your hair. <laughs> you would. You would, uh, that's a good look. Well, you could have it. You could have it. I don't need it that much. <laughs> and I'm, no, you know, but... I'm relieved to know that if, should I lose a little of my hair, I'm still going to look okay. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, my, if you ask the barber for a number three buzz, I could get just then that. it looks, it looks deliberate <laughs> as opposed to something you know where mother nature had her way well, thank you jeremy so, yeah. <laughs> i love it it's very very uh funny and for those audio listeners uh who didn't see what leo just put up we on tried the video to describe podcast, it but uh, there's nothing really uh, well can. their words really fail yes. um what the transporter can do is hard to describe <laughs> in some cases so uh, you, I'm not going to post it on the Security Now page, but you can find it at the beginning of the video for this podcast or in the show notes. Yeah, and it's the in show the show notes. notes. Are yeah. there? Yeah, yeah, that's it. That's right. I've Where do you put do your a... show notes? You put them on the secure, uh, grc.com slash Security Now. Is that? Yep, they're okay. on the same Security Now page as as the low bandwidth audio and the links Perfect. to your high bandwidth audio and Elaine's transcripts. So Perfect. everything is there. Yep, and uh, and we can thank, by the way, uh, Harry's for my lack of hair, apparently. <laughs> Somebody said that. Or your, your lack of fuzz. Lack yes. of fuzz, yes. A little too, a little too good. All right, well, we're going to take a break, and we'll get into the meat of the matter in just a moment. But I do want to remind you that protecting yourself online requires a little help. Uh, one of the best ways we've talked about doing this, especially at an open at Wi-Fi access point, but at anywhere where somebody along the wire could listen in, is with OpenVPN. But OpenVPN takes two parts. You need a, a client. That's you. And uh, in many uh, operating systems today, VPN clients are built in. But you also need a server. You need a, somewhere to surf to with your uh, VPN. And, uh, you know, a lot of times that's your office, your business. They may offer VPN. But if you don't have an, a, a, a VPN server of your own running, may I recommend ProXPN? It is the best hosted VPN solution out there for a lot of reasons. You know, nowadays with ISPs snooping on you because of the six strikes law and the risk, of course, of using Wi-Fi in an open access point, it's really nice to have a solid VPN solution. There's some advantages. You know, obviously you could run your own, and probably a lot of the people listening to this show are smart enough to do that. There are some real advantages to ProXPN. For instance, their servers, your endpoint, are all over the world. You could emerge onto the public Internet in Dallas or Los Angeles or Seattle, or New York City, or London, or Amsterdam, or Singapore. So geographic restrictions are a thing of the past. Uh, they've got a great app for Android that puts OpenVPN on Android, which is very nice. Otherwise, you have to use the somewhat less secure PPTP. But they support that as well. Uh, it's fast. In fact, when you get the premium uh 
Pro XPN service, you're going to get a very fast service. It's going to give you great results. Uh, I want to give uh, you a, a good deal on this, half off on your Pro XPN account right now. When you visit proxpn.com slash twit, 50% off the 12-month subscription. But you have to use our offer code SN50, SN50, half off the year subscription at Pro XPN. That makes it a very, very affordable solution. Hide your location, protect your identity, eliminate geographic restrictions, forget about somebody spying on you like your internet service provider with ProXPN. Visit ProXPN.com slash twit and use the offer code SN50 to save half off your yearly subscription. And by the way, they accept payments not only through Visa and PayPal, but also via Bitcoin. ProXPN dot com slash twit don't forget the offer code sn five zero back to steve gibson so these guys uh uh security researchers who are doing a presentation at uh the usenix conference coming up named their hack the gyrophone because it turns out that the gyroscopes which all of the state-of-the-art smartphones and smart devices have, you know, the, the Android and phones and iOS phones, uh, iPhones, iPads, and so forth. They're all, they have position sensing technology, which is useful for uh, like making the automatic switch between portrait and landscape. Uh, and of course, gamers use these in order to allow you to sort of put position feedback into the game. Um, and the technology involves some sort of a of a tiny little wafer floating in a in in a in a capsule, which is probably sensed capacitively, so that as as as, as you move it, its its inertia causes it to move relative to it the base. And there's sensing technology which can sense that it has moved relative to the base, like the capacitance changes. It's very sensitive. Um, what these guys is this postulate, the accelerometer they talk about in the phone? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And it actually isn't a gyroscope. Uh, that's sort of a misnomer, but it sort of has you know gyroscopic feel. I, it's probably but, yeah. I would think a mem, a mems, microelectric yes. mechanical machine. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, it, it's a form of that. So they they wondered whether there was and and to what degree there was information leakage from that. Now we talked about back in 2011, so three years ago, talked about how some Georgia Tech researchers were able to decode the like typing on a keyboard. You'll remember Leo from a phone placed on the desk, mm -hmm, not mm -hmm. far away from the keyboard. And they could, could like recognize who was typing. And in some cases, if, if it was trained, they were able to do keystroke recognition because they were able to pick up the vibrations of the keystrokes. So it turns out that, that some degree of speech is recoverable. Um, the Android OS samples its, we'll call it a gyroscope because that's the what it's generally known as, although it is in fact not gyroscopic. <laughs> There's nothing spinning inside um, the, the, you know, the inertial sensors. Android samples it at 200 hertz, 
whereas iOS samples theirs at 100 hertz. And that ends up being a crucial difference. Um, Mike, I wonder about that, the fact that they happen to be a factor of two and the fact that Android came along later. And if, you know, someone at Google didn't think, oh, well, we're going to sample ours twice as fast as iOS, just so that we are like have more responsive gaming, because arguably that could make a difference in just in terms of the, the smoothness of the feel. Although 200 hertz is still, you know, easily fast enough for gaming and i doubt that there's any huge difference between 100 but in terms of audio recovery what they found was on android devices where by the way there is no user control over software access or even website access to the gyroscope um, it turns out that Chrome and Safari on Android, um, do, the browsers themselves limit the JavaScript's access, thus a website's, a web server's or website that you're visiting's access to 20 hertz. So there's no danger there. But Firefox for Android lets websites access the full 200 hertz sample rate of an Android phone's gyroscope. So these guys didn't spend a lot of time worrying about or working on recognition. They're not speech recognition experts. They make that clear in their paper that they just, they only invested enough time to demonstrate that maybe Android should drop the sampling rate to 100 hertz or somehow control it more because um, they were able, again, with with their limited limited work, to discern the spoken digits zero through nine with an accuracy of about sixty five percent, and they just sort of chose that because you know that's a credit card number being read is digits zero through nine. They could determine the speaker's gender with about eighty five percent accuracy. And in a room with five different speakers, they could determine who was speaking with about 65% accuracy. So that, that's impressive when you think of like only getting a, a readout at 200 cycles per second. I mean, that's way below the like normal 8 kilohertz rate for audio that we would consider generally intelligible or even 4k or 2k i mean this is this is a tenth of 2k so remember we were talking about sampling relative to wagon wheels spinning last week so you know you're you're getting you know very very infrequent samples relative to what we can normally consider audio so it makes sense i mean you're not just going to play that on a speaker and hear someone's voice, you're going you're gonna to process it with software and do a lot of filling in of the blanks and, and essentially train it to recognize, like, what does the number nine look like at 200 hertz? It's not going to sound like anything, but what's it going to look like? And so this is the kind of thing, actually, it struck me that this is, this is, the, the sort of things that people seem to be doing now, maybe it's only post-Snowden that I'm thinking in terms of, you know, like what somebody with a budget could do. 
But this is the kind of stuff the NSA could do where they're probably thinking, darn, there goes another one of our channels. You know, the security guys have, have you know, found something else that we were, you know, having fun using that nobody would ever suspect. The, you know, the inertial sensors, the vibration sensors, essentially, uh, in our smartphones. So they, you know, they actually are leaking information. Not, it's, it's not super troublesome. I wouldn't be surprised. There were, there were Google people uh, present. Boy, I'm using the past tense. I'm sure I, I read them saying there were Google people present. Um, but I didn't think that the conference was yet. Anyway, um, I know that one way or another Google knows about this. And so they may very well do some mitigation just because they don't want to, you know, have any leakage of that, of that sort. And this was sort of interesting. I wanted to talk to you about this. Delaware just enacted some legislation that had been proposed by a, a nonprofit group, the Uniform Law Commission, uh, is a is a group that tries to sort of sort of keep our federated states synchronized so that we're not you know we're not wandering off too much in different directions so they proposed some legislation this uniform law commission proposed some legislation with the awkward acronym the UFADAA which is the uniform fiduciary access to Digital Assets Act. And what this does, what Delaware uh, D- Delaware uh, put a bill together, which the House passed, it was House, the Delaware House Bill um, HB 345, which uh, the governor signed into law, which, which classifies digital assets the, in the same fashion as physical assets after a person dies, meaning that that your survivors get access to all your social media accounts and other digital accounts. Um, the way the law reads, it says, a fiduciary with authority over digital assets or digital accounts of an account holder under this ch- chapter shall have the same access as the account holder and is deemed to have the lawful consent of the account holder and be an authorized user under all applicable state and federal law and regulations and any end user license agreement. So essentially, if you um, pass away or are incapacitated um, in the same, in the same process where uh, you know, of, of probate where your other assets go to, uh, you know, are inherited by your heirs so, uh, under this legislation, so would your digital assets be, which I don't know that I want that. Well, there you go. Current, That's your fiduciary responsibility. Yeah, currently um, it's only Delaware. Um and there and there's discussion about whether it's where the person is or where the company is and cuz there were there was talk about California being important cuz we have so much you know happening in 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 Silicon Valley but um and I I'm I'm hoping that a will could override this where a will could say you know for example right now this is Delaware only but 
this seems to be the direction we're going in. So, you know, do we want our heirs to have all of our usernames and passwords? The real issue, I think, is sometimes an heir will go to Facebook and Facebook will say, well, actually, Facebook has a process now, but originally Facebook would say, well, I'm sorry, you're not the person. I don't care if you're their spouse or you're their, uh, you know, executor. We, we're not. Uh, you know where it's happened with uh, Gmail? Uh, in fact, it's happened a couple of times with email systems for soldiers who have lost their lives. Yes, there was a famous Yahoo case where right. Yahoo refused and to his turn dad over. wanted to access his final emails, and Yahoo said, right. you're not him. So right. I think it's probably more to address that kind of situation, right? Right. So, so typically when a person dies, access to a digital service officially dies with them. Um, and with this law, your digital life would become an asset which your heirs could inherit. And so, so as I was saying, I'm hoping that you can override this with, with, with a, a, a will that says, you know, I don't want my heirs to have access to my accounts. I mean, that just sort of seems creepy to me. That's not a problem for me <laughs> since I plan to live a long time and I don't have any kids. But still, it's or, you know, uh, you know, or my family. It's like that's my stuff is not anyone else's business. I don't want someone posting as me or or, you know, impersonating me. We've we've, so, we've talked so. about this on. In fact, we just last week talked about it on. Uh this week in Google, and you know, Google has uh, an a- account activity monitor. They don't mention death. Yes, I did hear you guys talking about that. Yeah, <laughs> but they say if if your uh, there's a certain you can set the period of time if the, your account has not been accessed, and one of the uh, one of the uh, behaviors is we'll delete everything. So even if your heirs do have access to it, yeah, right. Does the law specify that I have to give somebody my passwords? Because if they don't have my passwords, then they have to go to Google, right? No, and and in fact, many terms of service specifically exclude that. In Facebook's terms of service, they said you will not – in their terms of service, you are agreeing you will not share your password or, in the case of developers, your secret key. Let anyone else access your account or do anything else that might jeopardize the security of your account. You will not transfer your account, including any page or application you administer, to anyone without first getting our written permission. So, you know, Facebook is, is you know, stating very clearly that, you know, this is for your personal and private use and not to be shared. Although they and, do have a process if you die. Uh, what the you the, your next of kin will then notify Facebook he died and they make a memorial they do they do something called memorialize your page. Did you know that? Which like freezes it? <laughs> no, I, no, I it allows people to comment, but I can't remember what the rules are. But it's like no, this person has passed on. Oh wow! Uh, this is a memorial now to that person. Well, so we're figuring this out. Would, I mean, yeah, as our lives yeah. become digital, and you know that digital existence outlives us as bits it's fascinating now so far this is delaware only and i don't know if this right although that from 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 the background that i read it looked like they're just first you know delaware tends to be where a lot of companies incorporate my previous company gibson labs was a delaware uh yeah uh, twits to delaware uh, corporation an s corp because they tend to be corporate friendly um 
uh, and I just didn't bother with, with, with Gibson Research. Yeah. So here's uh, the Facebook page. What happens when a person's account is memorialized? No one can log into that account again. Okay, good. Uh, so, so it's locked. It's locked. Right. It can't be modified in any way. This includes adding or removing friends, modifying photos, or deleting any pre-existing content. Depending uh, on the privacy settings, friends can share memories on the memorialized timeline. Anyone, can, I don't know what the purpose of this is, but anyone can send private messages to the deceased person. Ooh. <laughs> that's that's odd. <laughs> oh, oh. Uh, Where do they okay. go? Where do they go? What happens to them? Uh, content that the deceased person shared remains on Facebook and is visible to the audience it was shared with. It's just kind of frozen in, in amber. But memorialized timelines don't appear in public spaces such as suggestions for people you may know or birthday reminders. <laughs> Seems like a good idea. So I think it's yeah. Facebook has really been on the forefront of what do we do because it's probably happened quite a bit already. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it has to be a federal law. A state by state solution is not going to ever work until it's a right. And I think you know, and 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 uh, you know, this it tends to be the way things happen is that states experiment with them right. and play with them, and then at some point, someone decides, yeah, you know, that seems to work. Let's make it. Let, let's have this go nationwide. Yeah. So there's an interesting site that I thought would interest our users. Uh, Mike talked about it this morning on on TNT. Uh, he just mentioned it briefly. Uh, I wanted to give it a little more attention because it's our it's sort of our focus, and it's called HTTP shaming. Uh, it's at httpshaming.tumblr t u m b l r dot com. And yeah, uh, we talked about it on Twitter. <laughs> oh, and uh, and so he just put it up. And um, th th that is the person who created it. And, and individuals are able to submit sites which they feel are not providing the security that they wish they had. I'm impressed by it because although it's a little knee-jerky, over-the-top, on the other hand, the, the information is quality. There are packet traces from Wireshark showing, you know, the URLs and the the data in the clear and so forth. So, for example, you know, for Verizon Wireless, I, I, I picked some sort of major high-profile sites. Verizon Wireless, uh, the, this site mentions that it's a, they use a non-secured homepage which prompts for login with a form. And we know why that's not safe. Even though the form might be safe, that is, the submission might be an HTTPS URL, if the, if the form, if the page hosting the form is not secure, you don't know it, the contents hasn't been changed because it, it is an over-secure tunnel. It, it came to you in the clear, and you know anybody in a Starbucks who was able to intercept that could change it. So that, so that it looks like the Verizon wireless page, but you're you're logging in to them to to or or they're intercepting your credentials. Or all they had to do is take the S off the HTTP in the form <laughs> submission. Wow. What? Uh, oh no, I'm just saying. Wow. Yeah. You know, so, there, there um, is some good news here because uh, one they, they called out one password by for example, and they immediately fixed it. Yes, and so in fact, uh, Tripit cool. uh, Trip was one that caught my attention because Tripit 
is a is a popular you know oh, trip a, planning yeah. site, and it turns out that all that doesn't use security at all. So you know, I was listening to you talk. I, I have been listening to you talk about how you know, arguably, Twit really has no need to be over HTTPS, which I agree for for people who are just well, I want to ask you about content. that. I have you saw all the tweets from people showing this man in the middle attack using you know kitty videos, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, good. Um, I, I want you to reassure me. But we'll address that later. Okay. Yeah. So so, but in, in the case of TripIt. They're never using security, yet it's an interactive server which is sending your potentially sensitive travel details, calendars, and so forth, all in the clear. That is, everything you transact with them is unencrypted, and maybe you care about that. I mean, it's not just it's not just them being a static site delivering the same page over and over and over to different people where you could argue there's nothing there that anybody else couldn't get if they went there. Essentially, anytime a website is providing content for you, customized in some way for you, I think the argument could be made that should be secure because that's something you might not want other people to have access to. My point being that TripIt immediately responded that they're going to fix this. Good. So, so and you know, and Scrib D is here, Ubiquity, DirecTV, KeePass, Asus. You know, so there are some some rather high-profile sites that are being listed on this. They're getting attention. They're generating feedback from users, and unfortunately. This is what it takes. You know, sites won't move unless their users say, look, you don't fix this, you're losing me. And I know from our podcast listeners, there are a lot of people who feel that way about the sites they rely upon. So this is, you know, although this is a simple idea, you know, HTTP shaming, uh, it's looking like it's going to be socially effective. Yeah. So... uh I don't. I should look and see if it's in your notes. Did you want to talk about this issue of whether I should encrypt? Yeah, I'm still unclear why it's important for you. So, 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 so this was a, a bunch of people tweeted me and you saying, "Now, how do you feel, Leo?" And he they quoted a security researcher who was showing how a YouTube video a man it now requires a man in the middle attack, but how a man in the middle attack could be used to inject malware into a YouTube kitty cat video. Um, and the, the the point being that if there's a man-in-the-middle attack going on, my traffic could be modified on its way to hack somebody's computer, and that would be eliminated by an HTTPS connection. Uh, that's true, of course, for any non-HTTPS right. session with between a user and their browser. So... Um, uh, um, you know, so I guess the argument would be we should ban all non-secure traffic. Well, that's not going to happen. Right. Um, I, I, I think I think a a really reasonable compromise is to understand that forms should be delivered securely, in addition to their submissions obviously being secure, and as I said before, any 
any, you know, web app sort of session where you're you're inherently transacting, whether it's, you know, reservations or trip planning or, you know, social anything that's about you where you're at, where you're receiving customized pages. I think that ought to be, you know, underneath the cone of silence. Um, you know, as for, you know, if, if, if you're looking at static pages that where everyone who goes gets the same one, Yes, a man in the middle attack could it could alter that page and inject something into your browser, which has always been true, and the only way to resolve it. So, so it's not you know it's not more true about you than it is about anybody else. You know, like you know, would global I, HTTPS eliminate this problem? Yeah, actually, that's the only thing that will, because if I mean, if you're going to go all the way then you can never allow a non-HTTPS connection or that could be a way for, th- for them to get a shoe in. That is, if you, if you ever allow a non-secure connection and if that were modified to take the S's out of all of the HTTPs, then your user would just assume your site was not secured. When, in fact, you intended it to be, but you were waiting for their browser to send you HTTPS queries. And it didn't because somebody got in first and removed all the S's from the page. You know, like an e- a little bit of evil script could do that easily. So, so you know, in fact, you know, GRC did this a couple of years ago. And, and Adam Langley, of all people, was nice enough to put my domain in Chrome so that it is – so Chrome knows never go to GRC except securely. Right, right. And, of course, the, the, <clears throat> the onus now is make sure I always have a valid security certificate. Right. And, again, that, 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 that's the trade-off. You know, it's very easy for people to say, oh, everybody should be secure. It's like try that. You know, try it for a while. It's – got to be on your game and, you know, the, as I said, the certificates are not free. Uh, if you want to get good ones, they're more expensive. And then you really need to make sure you don't lapse and let them expire or nobody could get to your site. So it's, you know, I, 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 we're, we're clearly moving in that direction. And, and I think it makes more sense to say secure things where it makes sense to secure them and... Um, Although that's the point that if a man in the middle attack it could be used to propagate malware through from a site that's not secure, then every site needs to be secured, I guess. That's my point. Is yeah. this like there's nothing different about Twit from, you know, anybody else. Well, you watch and, video and, on this site, so you could somebody could inject something bad in it, I guess. Um okay. Yeah, hey, but can't you? I mean, couldn't you also, uh, if you've got a man in the middle attack running, couldn't you just replace my certificate anyway? Intercept it and then. Um, no, because uh, assuming that the person's browser hasn't been compromised, ah. the there's no one for there's no way for somebody, some third party, to get a twit.tv certificate. Right. They would they they'd have to convince a CA right. to give them one, and okay. CAs are you know. I mean, their whole job is not to give bad guys certificates for other people. Maybe we should get an HTTPS certificate. What the hell? Yeah, I mean, it's a it, it's 
now that you know Google's made the switch, you know we're 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 seeing more and more companies. I mean, but you know, just during the last couple of years, you know, Facebook has gone, Twitter has gone, Google has gone. So you know, GRC, I was in no big hurry because I was just. I mean, I have very little. Only the purchasing of Spinrite actually involves any interaction interaction with with the user. Um, otherwise, it's just pretty much static pages. But finally, it be, it was sort of like, well, okay, you know, we're about security, so I should be secure. Yeah. And, you know, so should we. And, you know, a number of people sent me notes saying, well, you can get a cert for five bucks or ten bucks or whatever a year. I mean, there are cheap certs out there. Yes. So. Yes. Oh, and it was. I, uh, I referred to – it was funny. I, I referred to Start TLS – and I thought, wait a minute, it's not start TLS because that's that's an email protocol for bringing up a TLS connection uh, over you know POP or uh, IMAP or so forth. It's start SSL. They're a right. start SSL will give you. I think it's a one year certificate. Uh, they just set the expiration to one year because they can and because it's free. Um, though it's not universally accepted in all browsers and i did hear that some browser was removing their like mozilla or somebody was going to stop honoring start ssl certs just because they, they were you know potentially flaky well cuz you know, they have so, a very well, ugly website i think that right there <laughs> is is one reason that is an ugly ass website jeez <laughs> All I'm right. not commenting. Since, you know. <laughs> yeah, no, you should stay out of this one. <laughs> hey, yours is functional, man. It's very clean. Yes, functional. Okay, so there was great news. Uh, our friend S Simon Zarafa tweeted to make sure that I saw this and uh, forwarded me the link, uh, the news, that with the latest update of Java, something new got added to the control panel. Down there at the bottom, second from the last line under miscellaneous, was something I was so glad to see. Uh, under advanced on the Java control panel, under miscellaneous, there's now an option, not checked by default, of course, but it's there, which reads, suppress sponsor offers when installing or updating Java. Yay. OMG. Yes, but I it, know. So it's only, but it will only be effective for future installs. Yes. And, you know, for the, for, it's only going to help the cognoscenti among right. us because right. it's not checked, obviously, by default. Right. But, but, so for everyone listening, for those of you who need Java, I, I need it. I don't have it in my browsers, so my browsers won't run it. But but you know I use you know the Eclipse, uh, uh, the Eclipse platform, and a number of other things that are Java based. So I've got it in my in my machine, um, and I'm always getting that Ask Toolbar uh, offer that's so annoying. And once I forgot to turn it off, I just yeah. was in a hurry and I click click click. It's like oh, uh. so so. Go into the Java control panel and just enable suppress sponsor offers when installing or updating Java. And from then on, it'll did the the wizard skips over that uh, page or defaults the checkboxes to off 
rather than on. So you on it's no longer incumbent upon you to make sure you never uh, install that by mistake. And again, I so I salute Oracle. Thank you for that. Well, it's about uh, the least they could do. It is literally, the least, <laughs> but at least it's there. Yeah. <laughs> um, Microsoft had a little boo boo. Uh, they had a problem with one of last Tuesday's updates, which was causing restart problems for people. Uh, it's some tangle involving fonts being installed in non-standard directories. It's not really clear what the problem is, but um, they have withdrawn it from their site and under their, I'm not sure how you get to the knowledge base article if your computer won't boot, but if you are able to, maybe you do the pre previous configuration option emergency restart cycle or something. But they explain customers who are experiencing difficulties restarting their systems after the... I love this <laughs> way Microsoft phrases things. If you've died recently, well, no, uh, restarting their systems after the installation of security update 29827... Oh, oh it's, a, it's a start date. Start date 298 should refer to the known issues section of Microsoft knowledge base article and same number 2982791 uh where it it sort of explains that there seems to be a problem with fonts and they're not really sure what the problem is but they've identified the sensitivity with four other updates so you're supposed to go through and uninstall those, and it, it's a mess. It's not so, merely a security flaw, though, right? It crashes the computer and stuff. Yeah, you can't yeah. get into Windows. Oh. I mean, and that's okay. yeah. I mean, it, mm. it <laughs> minor detail. It's a BSOD sort of nightmare, uh, and not good. So Microsoft has withdrawn it, and I guess it'll probably emerge uh, a month from last week uh, for the September patch cycle. Um, I am done with the, I'm almost done with the UI stuff, uh, in squirrel, uh, this Leo, I have it right here. This is as of a couple days ago, the page that squirrel prints when you press the print my identity button, uh, in the squirrel UI, there is uh, in, in the top of the page uh, is a QR code format of uh, a squirrel identity. And then lower down, in case you're ever in a situation where you don't have a, um, a, a webcam, is a, a, a short uh, sort of textual version that if in an emergency somebody had to type in, they could uh, in order to recover your identity. So... Um, Anyway, it's uh, it's coming along nicely, uh, and so all of the all of the crypto work has been finished now for a few weeks, and people have been testing it. Ralph's Android client, which is sort of a pro forma client, available in over in the in the Google Play Store, uh, and Squirrel are able to, uh, and my client are able to interchange identities. Uh, I won't get into a lot of the super details because a lot more of this will be automatic than it is right now. But, you know, th it's beginning to come alive. I I posted in the news group 
my the, the my newfound appreciation for how really difficult it is to to write really secure code because and, and you know I've been coding now for more than 40 years and so I've I'm to the point where I've, I've sort of have the philosophy of coding and when I find a bug I spend some time asking myself how that happened because you know I'm in, I'm interested in the process as much as the result and and what I appreciate is that the architecture of our computers is really lagging behind what we want from them from a security standpoint. When there, there is some architecture enforced by the hardware, you know, the notion of, of processes where a process runs within pages uh, where the chip enforces the paging so that processes have essentially what that means is they have isolated address spaces so that the address space in one process is 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 disjoint from the address space of another now unfortunately there are needs that we have for breaking that process isolation. For example, processes have to be able to talk to each other in order to get work done. Debuggers have to be able to reach into another process in order to halt it and single step it and allow a programmer to examine what's in there. So that means the operating system to support cross-process debugging and cross-process communications has to in some way, break that isolation. But, but at the lower level, just within the process itself, it, it, is, it is extremely difficult to keep anything secure from leaking. So, for example, as I was writing Squirrel, um, the, there's, this no, there's, there's this concept of local variables, which are variables that are allocated on the on this on the local stack which is is very quick and and easy to use but they're sort of they're 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 sometimes called automatic variables or local variables they're they're they sort of disappear when you leave the procedure or the subroutine where you were using them because they were they were dynamically created just by moving the stack pointer down such that the region above the stack pointer is now sort of available as a scratch pad and when you leave the the subroutine the stack pointer is moved way back up again which sort of has the effect of just discarding those but they're not erased they're still there on the stack and so for my definition of tr- what truly secure code is, I refused to ever leave any sensitive d- data on the stack when any of my subroutines exited, which sometimes got me in trouble because I, I, like I, I received information on the stack when, I, when a subroutine was called 
then I had to decide whether I could erase it myself and like so I so like was I through with it or did the the caller retain responsibility for erasing the the sensitive data that I was that it was passing to me and I mean my point is that that coding a, a I, and I've never had to you know nothing that I've ever done has had this level of 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 insistence from me of like rigor in security you know the server at grc assumes no, because i have really good control over all of it i can make the assumption that within the server i have security certainly within within the the web server process um and I've, it's never been the case that that's been a problem. But a desktop where this squirrel client is operating is just, it's the it's the Wild West still. I mean, it's still a scary environment. You know, we were just talking about like, you know, evil kitty, <laughs> evil kitty YouTube videos. The fact that those exist is disturbing. And so, <laughs> so. And, and you're surprised? It's not that the kitties are evil, of course. It's no, that no. malware can use that to ride into your to your system. So, so I'm I'm determined that my client will you know be ruthlessly secure, and that which means that that for the br- briefest period possible, things are decrypted, and anything that is sensitive is overwritten before it's released. And so so I've in several cases I've I've gone back through my code to and I like I left breadcrumbs for myself saying okay remember every in every instance where I ever decrypt something make sure that I zero it before I leave before I you know don't just stop using it wipe it and Oh my lord! I mean, I'm sure that isn't being done most of the time in this industry because nothing would get done. I mean, th- there's there's like no help for 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 this. It is incumbent on the programmer to understand the sc- carefully understand the scope of of use of sensitive data and and take responsibility for for proactively zeroing it before they stop using it and and that's just a that's a much higher barrier for 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 coding squirrel enforces that practice uh throughout all of the crypto work it does but boy i i really came away with a much more uh, deep appreciation for for how difficult that is, and most people are not writing assembly language, you know, at the register level, managing this themselves the way I am. And my point is that most of the time you're using third party libraries, so you really don't have control over what's being done outside of of there, and. Um, I referred to something a couple weeks ago that I ran across. It was code. 
I don't remember now what it was. I think it might have been an open SSL. I saw something where that they weren't doing, and it was like, oh, boy, uh, ouch. And, and I have verified since I've assembled the library Squirrel is using from their source. I have made sure that they are, you know, mem0 is the, is, is the typical call, that, that they are zeroing any buffers that contain sensitive data prior to them being done with it. And the good news is the authors of those libraries knew what they were doing and understood the need to do that. But, wow, it's, uh, I, I mean, I have, a like I said, a, a deeper appreciation for how difficult this is. And as a consequence, an understanding of the fact that it just most code isn't going to be secure. It's, I mean, not not within such tight boundaries. It, it For example, if you rely on the process to be secure, then... It's like okay, within the process you can be sloppy if you if you assume that your process boundaries are are the security of at the process boundaries being enforced reliably by the OS. I'm not making that decision. So I decided, you know, I didn't want code to be able to get injected into the squirrel client and catch it uh, when it wasn't looking, leaving secu- sensitive information on the stack. So I never do, but boy, it's it's a it's a high bar, and uh, it sure does. I mean, it's fun to do it, but <laughs> I don't want to do it again. <laughs> I'm glad I'm through with that portion of it. It's just work. Um, when I'm going through the mailbag uh, for our Q and As, I I sometimes encounter, but I don't really have an opportunity to to, to sort of. Create the. I, I don't have the opportunity to address the question that people ask when they say, "What does Spinrite do?" And since we didn't have too much news this week, and I can easily fit our discussion of big routing tables into half an hour, I wanted to take a little bit of time for the sake of listeners who haven't been listening that long because I because invariably they say in, in, in I see email that says hey I've I've only been listening for a while and I hear you're you know sharing testimonials from people who report that Spinrite recovered data that they desperately needed to have recovered but okay how or 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 why or you know all you ever do is like share success stories, you never talk about what it is. And I've, so I've had, sort of had that comment from people. So I thought I'd, I'd, I'd spend a minute just to sort of explain, because it's an, it's an interesting fact that I never designed Spinrite for data recovery. Th- that wasn't what it was for. Um, and That's why I always call it a, the best hard drive maintenance utility. Right. And, and it sort of had a maintenance, it sort of had a maintenance mode, but even that was sort of a side effect. So the way Spinrite began was when, uh, it, it was actually generated by uh, my, my noticing that if I, th- there, was a, there was an old style servo-based hard drive that actually, a girlfriend of mine had all of her company's f- bookkeeping on. 
uh, years of financial records, and it failed. And she was desperate to have this data back. And so I, I said, okay, you know, I'll, I'll take a look at it. And the, it, this was one of those big five and a quarter inch, you know, full height, full width, really heavy servo-based drives. And I don't know what inspired me to do this, but I, I guess I was desperate. But I lifted one end of the drive up, and then it worked. <laughs> That's bizarre. And, and, and I knew why, because there All was... All the bits were rolling down to one side. That they were loose. Well, yeah. That's exactly right, Leo. They needed to sort of shuffle around yeah. down there and reorganize themselves. <laughs> they were all sliding <laughs> to the end. <laughs> there, was, there was something known as tower drift, where a, a hard drive would have a servo platter, which, which one of the heads would read. That told it where the tracks were. And then all the other heads... Receive essentially got their positioning information just physically because they were they were connected to the same mechanism, and what would happen though over time, just due to mechanical wear and tear, heating and cooling the drive up every morning and evening, is that the sometimes the head that was furthest away would go off track. That is, it would stop being able to find the sector headers that were originally written when the drive was low-level formatted. And so what happened when I lifted one end of the drive up about an inch is that put some gravitational bias into the side-to-side motion of the heads. It literally pulled the heads toward toward the center of the platter's because gravity created a bias, and now we were able to find the sector headers. Wow! So, what you I knew that—I mean, you just kind of knew that in your head. Yeah, well, I'm an engineer, so I understood. I understood that. Wow! So, then what I knew I had to do was I had to refresh the low-level format of the drive. And essentially migrate the sector headers back to their new position when that they would have when the drive was level again. So I wrote it. I quickly wrote a a program which which read a track, re low level formatted that track, and then wrote it back. And the act of doing that. While the while, well, that was while the drive was elevated, while it was able to find its sectors, and then I ran through that process. Then I lowered the drive about a quarter of the way and did it again, and lowered it another quarter of the way and did it again, and lo- and the final quarter of the way and did it again, and then horizontal and did it again. Wow! And so what that did was in in with every. With every quarter of an inch of lowering, it the 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 tracks were actually moving back out to where they would naturally be. But by low level formatting the entire drive each time, I was pulling the headers with me. 
I was I was bringing them back into alignment and it fixed the drive. So it was not long after that that I stumbled upon the idea or I, I, I did something called spin test and spin time when I was writing the InfoWorld column. These were very short programs where a little bit of basic with a hex with the program itself in data statements of hex at the end and so the program would just poke the data into memory and then jump to it and that allowed me to deliver in in a printed page it allowed me to deliver assembly code and spin test and spin time were simple algorithms which which just read sector one over and over and over and checked to see how long it took. And by doing some math, it was, and, by, and all, also doing like sector one and sector two, sector one and sector three and so forth, then doing some math, I could figure out how, what the interleave of the drive was. And what I and many hundreds of people who use these little pieces of freeware discovered was that, the interleaves were wrong. They, though the drives at that era, MFM drives, had 17 sectors per track. And the computer could not read sector one and sector two and sector three sequentially. It, 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 it was only able to read a sector at a time. So it would read sector one. And then after reading it, it would the controller would transfer it into RAM, and then the computer would ask for sector two. Well, the problem is sector two, if, if just the, even the first little tiny bit of sector two had started to go past the head, we had to start, we had to wait for it to come all the way around again to get sector two. Then we would do that. And then well, by the time we got to ask for sector three, it had already started to go past the head. So again, we had to go all the way around. So this problem was well understood. IBM in the XT, they set the so-called interleave to six so that you'd have sector one and then six physical sectors upstream would be logical sector two. So remember that like the 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 physical sectors are are the actual the actual physical location around the track but each one of those sectors has a header that declares the, i am logical sector 1 2 3 4 and so forth so if there if the interleave was 1 to 1 then there that would mean that the physical and logical numbering was identical but if it was like 1 to 2 that would mean that Every other physical sector was was logically sequential. So you'd have sector one and then, I don't know, like sector six and then sector two and then sector seven and then sector three and then sector eight and so forth. So the idea would – so that would be with an interleave of two to one. XT shipped it with an interleave of six to one, which meant that, that – no matter, essentially, that gave the computer ample time to read in sector one, digest it, and decide it wants sector two. And by that point, instead of sector two already just having passed by, it would still be out in front, coming toward the head. 
So that's much better than them having it, you know, just underneath the head or or leaving. It would still be on its way in. So so what that would mean is with an interleave of six to one, you could get every sixth sector in a single revolution or that reading a 17 sector track took six revolutions because you were only getting every sixth one each time. Well, the the clones, the famous WD-1003 controller that all of the clone computers, the, PC, the IBM PC-XT clones used, uh, the Western Digital Controller had an interleave of three to one. And I'm sure that some engineer at WD thought, they were being really clever. Maybe they were running in an AT, I, I, like in a faster machine. I never understood why WD used three to one, except that it made them twice as fast as IBM. That is, for for if you use their controller with an interleave of three to one, it could read. It would take three revolutions of the drive to read the whole track, rather than six, unless that particular clone that you put that Western Digital Controller in couldn't handle three to one, which was always the case. It turns out those, all of the clones that everyone was using needed four to one. And in fact, three to one was the worst possible interleave because that meant that when the computer asked for the next sector, it was standing on it. It wasn't just in front of it, um, but that sector wasn't just in front of it. It was on it. So it, it so a if the disk was interleaved at three to one, it took 17 revolutions to read the entire 17 sector track because you were only getting one sector per revolution. It was it was awful. And the whole world was putting up with that. That nobody understood this. But I understood that that, that 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 that's what was going on. The only way to fix this after you've after you're using your computer and you've got data, and remember the only other backup we had was floppies. And so you know people used to like when if you had to back up your twenty megabyte or thirty megabyte drive. On diskettes, you know, <laughs> that was something you really did we do put that? off. Did we really? Oh, yeah. Oh, we God. did. Remember stacks of disks? <laughs> yeah. You just put one in after another. And, of course, floppies are so unreliable that you had no real guarantee that the, that your backup was going to be, you know, use, usable if you ever did need it. But so the only recourse someone would have would be to back up their whole drive and then re-low-level format at the because it's the low-level formatting time is when you set the physical location of the sectors and you could override with some commands you did uh g equals c 800 colon five uh c 800 was the segment in memory colon five was the offset of the starting address of wd's interactive sort of command line tool to do this and then you could give some commands and it, it would low level format and you could say i want an interleave of four which was fabulous except you couldn't do it with data on your drive so then you'd have to, so you have to back up the drive pray that your floppy backup was good 
re-low-level format the drive, and then put everything back. Unless you got a copy of Spinrite. Because what I realized from my experience, um, low-level formatting that 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 five and a quarter inch full size drive was you there was a command that allowed you to low level format a track just one and that meant that i could incrementally re low level format a whole hard drive by doing it one track at a time i i would read the track interleaved it whatever it was then re-low-level formatted at the proper interleave and then put the data back and then go to the next track. If people did that, they would, their computer would go from reading a track in 17 revolutions. This is all the clones in the industry, you know, like virtually all the computers, took 17 revs to read a track. After running Spinrite, it was four. So that was a 425% improvement in speed. I mean, it was, you could feel that. I mean, it, it, the computer just booted like, whoa, holy. <laughs> I mean, people were amazed. The problem was that there were defects on these drives and um, and manufacturers were supposed to note the location of the defects at the time that the drive was low-level formatted. Many of them didn't. But more importantly, what I'm doing when I'm changing the low-level format is I'm physically relocating the sectors to different positions. But that means that if there was a defective sector in a certain location, like sector 5, that's that that logical sector five that might be marked in the file system as do not use that becomes logical sector 10 for example if the interleave changes meaning that the 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 defects are going to appear in different sectors of the file system if i change the interleave so that was sobering because that meant if I was going to do this, and our listeners now know, having just heard about you know what I've done in Squirrel to make sure that the code is secure, I'm very methodical. I'm going to do it right. So th this meant that I needed to perform defect analysis to make sure that it was safe to put what was a good sector's data in a different physical location that may not have been marked out by the manufacturer and and essentially the defects were moving because I was moving the sectors around. But the other thing that happened is if I was going to do a low-level format, we know that the one thing a low-level format does is wipe out what's on the track. It I mean it plows, it, it just plows a new a new data zone for the data to be laid down. That the, the head is turned on and it just it wipes out what's there. Well, that meant it was also incumbent upon me, who insists on doing a, a as perfect a job as as humanly possible, to make sure I have read the data that is there. That is to recover 
what is there no matter what because if I once I low level format it's gone so what I did at back, way back at the beginning like 23 years ago when I wrote Spinrite version 1 was I built in really robust data recovery technology I mean I did everything I could imagine uh, back then um, we had often had stepper positioning uh, sort of dead reckoning positioners where it was just a stepper motor that operated in notches and it had a rack and pinion that moved the head out to a, to the proper location but it was just that mechanical system that that decided where the head came to rest. There was no servo back then. That was only on the really high-end drive. The one that everyone used, I like the, the famous Seagate ST225. Um, that was a 20-megabyte drive, and it just had it had a, had a, a steel tape round, wound around a, a, a round uh, hub on the stepper motor, and that steel tape p- positioned the head. So... Um, um, I needed to, in order to make sure that I got all the data that was there, if I had a problem reading the sector, I would do things like step out in one direction, then come back and try it again. Then step in the other direction, a different distance and come back. And I, in fact, I have a random number generator. There's always been one in Spinrite to choose a random distance to go away in order to come in at a different arrival velocity and profile in order to get the head in a slightly different <laughs> position, maybe to, to coerce the drive to give it to me one last time. I just need it one more time. And so, so, you know, all of that is in there. And um, there, there's even technology where if I absolutely finally am unable to get the get get the a, a sector to be read completely correctly, then I will. Th- there's a way for Spinrite to say, "Well, give me what you've got," and because it turns out that there was some benefit to the "give me the best you can do." For example, a, a sector you might have a sector that was in a file system. <laughs> where there's only a few entries at the beginning of that sector to subdirectories. Yet later in the sector, where there's not even anything that matters, is where the defect is. Yet the drive won't give you the sector because it says, no, I can't read it perfectly. Well, it turns out there's not actually any data there in this case, but un- being unable to read that sector prevents you from following those two subdirectories, which could be huge, could contain all of your database data or all of anything. And so this is one of the keys to the miracles Spinrite seems to perform is this do give me the best you can turns out to be incredibly valuable. And so anyway, back then and all of this technology I've managed to carry forward and keep alive over the decades um, back then, I ju- I built the most robust data recovery I I knew how to build. I mean, just it does incredible tricks to get the data back, which is why it so often succeeds. And when all of that was done, when I when I had the data, I would then fix the low level format 
and then go to the next sector. And the, as a consequence, Spinrite sped people's drives up. Well, the other thing it did was it recalibrated them. It was a version of that lowering the drive a quarter inch each time and doing it again. And that was where the preventive maintenance part came in. Because as your, as your tracks are migrating over time, this migration caused by mechanical wear and tear, just the mechanical wear and the fact that you're heating it up and cooling it down in this daily cycle, the tracks drift a little bit over time. If you if you run Spinrite before you can no longer read them, it rewrites them in, it sort of, it, it reads them even though they're a little bit off track, but when it rewrites them, it puts them directly under where the head is now to essentially realign the data. And so, so it might have a hard time recovering it, but once it rewrites it, now it can read it. And the same is now true with error correction. Notice that these defects, uh, the, if the tracks are migrating, the defects in the surface are not. They're staying still. But what that means is they're effectively moving relative to the tracks. So you might have had a defect that was in between tracks and not causing a problem, which migrates into a track because the track has migrated into it, essentially. And similarly, other defects might leave. So there's a lot more going on uh, for good and bad inside these drives. A lot of this turns out to still be useful today. Interleave, that disappeared years ago. And I think it was with Spinrite 5 that I actually took that code out. It just wasn't useful any longer because no one because all computers and drives got smart and were able to handle reading every every sector of the track in a single revolution they were all one-to-one interleave so that went away but all of that legacy excruciating um, reformatting data recovery and rewriting technology that has lived on and has ended up being Spinrite's legacy. It will almost always succeed in getting your data back. And so that's what Spinrite does and sort of why uh, I it's been doing it for so many years now. Very awesome. You have a whole page on the website, don't you, that explains how Spinrite works. Is I mean... This yeah. is in more detail than that. Yeah. <laughs> we, I don't think we'd ever really <laughs> heard about the tilting hard drive exploit <laughs> and, and the like. Always like to bring, always like to bring some new details in. <laughs> we will talk about border gateway protocol, big yep. iron, and routing, big tables, routing tables. And what can go wrong? What could possibly go wrong? What did go wrong last Tuesday? It did. Um. Oh, I was going to show you a uh, a uh, infographic. Ah, let me see if I can find this about Facebook that I found. It's kind of surprising. In the first eight years of Facebook's existence, thirty million users have died. Four hundred twenty-eight die every hour. Ten thousand every day. Over three hundred thousand every month. So this is not a bogus issue. Yeah, it's not just a hypothetical. No. No wonder they've got all this infrastructure around it. 
Wow, well, good for them. And uh, somebody in the chat room was saying, after looking, actually looking at the Delaware uh, law, Coco said, um, it's very clear the purpose of the law is to give legal representatives of people who have died or incapacitated access to digital material only in accordance with the presumed intention of the ah. dead or incapacitated person. Good. They're, you know, you know, if you express it in a, this is the problem. If you don't have a will and you don't express your intention, then the law can only kind of guess, right? But it, this doesn't override what anything you've expressed. So if you express right. so, your intention, so, right? Like, don't look so, at my stuff when I'm dead. <laughs> so uh, statutory, I think, is the term. So so statutes right. would apply, in, right. in, in, unless you say in lieu this of is, your this own is, expressed uh, intent. Right. Yeah. So then this is just one more reason. There are many, many reasons why you should have a will and just start adding your digital assets to your uh, tangible assets. Yeah, do consider them. I mean, yeah. we, we've talked about like what happens about your master password and how right. do you handle right. passwords and so forth. So so this is a similarly important uh, aspect. Yeah. Yeah, we've had some good conversations about how to divide your master password up amongst your, <laughs> your lawyer and your spouse and all of that stuff. Right. Hey, before we go on to big routers, let's do a little uh, little advertorial here for IT Pro TV. I mean, it, it's an advertisement, sure, but I have to say I have a little soft spot in my hot, heart for these guys because uh, they came here to us and said, hey, would you mind? We really like what you're doing. Would you mind if we did the same thing, not to compete with you, but for people studying for their certs? Don and Tim are such fans of Twit that they've actually, in fact, if you watch... Uh, IT Pro TV on the air. That you'll you'll see it yourself. Actually, let me log in first because um, I could show you a little bit more if I've logged in. There's a lot of free site uh, info at the site, by the way. They said, uh, you know, we we like what you're doing. We'd love it if you could kind of if tell us, you know, how how you do it, so that we can create a channel that is essentially the same for people who are getting their certs. I mean, look at, does that not look a little bit like the screensaver set? <laughs> sure does. It really does. Uh, that's that's uh, Tim right there. Um, they've, it makes it, they, what they're doing is they're teaching people how to do things like manage Macintoshes or Microsoft Windows. You can get your MCSE, your Cisco cert, your A+, your CCNA, your Security+. Plus. They, uh, they've just added the Apple and Linux uh, Plus certs as well. It's like watching uh, us. You can watch it on your Roku, your laptop, your tablet. If you have a yearly plan, you can actually... <laughs> his title is Group Hug, apparently. You can actually download uh, the uh, audio or video for offline use. Um, they tell great stories. They share their experiences. And because you have chat, you can get in there and ask questions and, uh, and talk with the, just as, as you do with our, our stuff. Direct interaction with the hosts. They also have web-based Q&As on study topics. They break down their videos uh, by topic. So if you go to look at the course library, you can actually study for a specific question or section of the, of the cert. A+, Net+, Security+, CASP, Strata, Linux+, MCSA, MCSE, CSENT. They've got the new ISC squared uh, security search with boy their ISC squared teachers so great, and well I'll just I'll dive into the course and we'll show you a little bit and you could do this if you go to itpro.tv/security now, you can see everything that's here. They've so got the, a, do they do they get certified by the no. by the certificate? You would then go out and take the test. 
Ah, Although they okay, have good. they have practice tests, which are great. The Measure Up practice exams. Those are normally 80 bucks. They're free with your membership. They also have a virtual machine sandbox lab environment. So you can set up a Windows server, set up the clients on any browser with HTML5 support for any OS. Nice. So yeah. they provide all the tools. Yeah. It's really, really a sweet uh, solution. Um, if you want to get polish up your IT skills or get a better job, you could do it right now. Let me go to the lab. I've never actually done this on the air, and I don't, I don't know what's, how well this is going to work. But let me let me just see here. So I'm in the sandbox. Um, so so they actually have a Windows lab that you can log into and take your courseware. It is really awesome. Now, because I'm on a Mac, this is going to be weird, but it's, it's actually going to set up. It's setting up a virtual machine for a server. It's setting up client machines. So you're not, this is not, you know, you're not just watching TV. You're really practicing and learning. This is better than IT boot camp. And it's comparable to the cost of just a printed study guide. But boy, it's a soul lot more. Look, I've got Windows Server 2012 R2 running. Wow. I know. Isn't that awesome? Um, it's just incredible. And they walk you through it. I mean, it's not like you, you I mean, everything you want to know is here. This is truly a great environment. I highly recommend it. Now, here's the deal. You can go there and, and find out more about it. They've got free video and so forth you can, you can look at. Um, there are also, I should say, corporate accounts for departments and companies. But if you're an individual and you want to try this out, Go to itpro.tv slash security now. Normally, it's $57 a month, $570 a year. But we have a special offer. They're big fans of Twit. And kind of to thank us for kind of helping them do this, they've offered us a 30% off subscription uh, code. That's not just for a year. That's forever. SN30, That's that makes it less than $40 a month, $40 for an entire year. You're A lifetime of learning for you. It really is great. If you're interested in this stuff... They really are the best. ITPro.tv slash security now. The code SN30. I have to log off my Windows server here before we go on. I don't want to leave it running. I, I am lost now. You could tell I don't I shouldn't be taking this class. Or maybe I should. How do I get out of here? Oh, there we go. Sign out. Whew. That was close. IT <laughs> ITPro.tv slash security now. Use the offer code SN30 to save 30% off. For the life of your subscription. Somebody's saying, I'm looking at this, but I haven't taken the leap. How do employers evaluate this? Well, this, the point is that you then go out and take the cert, which employers recognize and understand. But I got to say, you're going to be much more than just preparing for a cert. You're so gonna, this, you're so this, provides all, this provides all the training and yes. an environment where you can then perform you go take experiments. The Yes. Right, right. And, right. Uh, and or this is really good if you've taken the test and you had problems, you failed. And, the, and you know what your trouble spots are. You can go directly to them and study, study up there. It's, it's nicely done. Oh, just because I signed out, my server's not shut down. Uh-oh. <laughs> Sorry, Don. You, you can handle that while I'm talking about big routing yeah, tables. Can, can you shut down that server for me, Tim? All right. Let's talk about B, what? Okay, so uh, these are not. This is not my Linksys in the closet. No, um, although you're, the Linksys in the closet is is doing in its own small way very much what the big, the so-called big iron routers 
are doing out on the internet. So let's let's step back a bit and sort of and refresh our foundation about about how the networks. Um, listeners who have not been listening for years will not have heard this before. Um, so I, I beg the indulgence of those who who have listened to every podcast for the for the last nine years as we start into year number ten. Um, I remember when I first sort of heard the rumors of the of an internet or the notion, like sort of science fiction at that point, of a global network. You know, at the time we had modems, and you dialed your phone to connect to the source or CompuServe or something. And, and yeah. Yeah. That was point to point, one to one. You didn't need a router. Well, exactly. And, and I remember thinking, how, how can all the computers be connected together? <laughs> I mean, how, how can that, I mean, because back then the notion was you would need wires to go between them all and and what we now know is we now sort of take for granted is this the incredible inspiration of the original designers was this was this notion of what's called packet switching where where you a given computer would not need wires to every other computer which was clearly impossible because then you would need, you know, N times N minus one number of wires, and that's just not going to happen when N is large. Instead, you were essentially, you were able to reuse one pair of wires because the data that was going over those wires had addresses, Rather than the wire itself representing who you were connected to, the wire represented being connected to the world. And then, into, and then the, 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 the brilliance was that the, the stream of data that used to just be a continuous connection between two endpoints, the stream was broken up into packets carrying the addresses of the source and the destination the essentially the addresses of those two endpoints were the 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 endpoints were not physical as at each end of wires they were logical as addresses in the packet so it was an abstraction a brilliant abstraction that that made this work so then you have individual computers that that all have their own wires connected to one way or another to a so this thing called a router and then the routers were connected to each other and the routers knew who was connected where and that's the key so so there's several levels of brilliance here. There's the notion of the abstraction of a connection is no longer the actual electricity. The electricity is now the data flow and the connection is, 
is a logical connection rather than a physical connection, and not not ra- ra- rather than an electrical connection. It's a logical connection represented by addresses carried by packets of data. But to make this work, then to to bridge the logical to physical, something needs to know where an address is. We have the notion of addresses. IP addresses, we're all very glib about, IPv4 giving us 32 bits of addresses, but we still need to know where because the job then when a one user puts one of these packets of data on their wire and sends it to their router, the one they're connected to, the router is like spokes hooked up to a bunch of other routers. And those routers have spokes hooked up to a bunch of other routers ad infinitum. But somewhere, some number of hops, as it's called, a hop is each of these links is a hop. Some number of hops away is the destination. And and when the packet of data arrives at the router, the router looks at the address, the, the, the destination, there, there's a source address and a destination IP, it, just using the destination IP, it sort of needs to look around at the links it has to other routers and decide which one to send the packet out that will, is sort of taking it in the direction of its destination. And if that happens enough times, Finally, it gets to the router that the guy that you're you're sending it to, the the other end, is connected to, and then it goes to them. So routing tables is the way this is done. Now, the originators of this system, again, with shocking foresight, I I mean, for this thing to have survived basically unchanged. We've we've tweaked it here and there, but it's pretty much the way it's been. It's just incredible that it's gone from, you know, a research academic platform to this, I mean, to an amazing global thing, still basically the same. That's just, I'm just in awe of that. I'm sure that when they did 32-bit addresses, when they said, how, you know, how much addressing space should we need, they were laughing at 32 bits. Oh, we're never, you know, come on. Are you sure you want to waste all those bytes on address space? Because we're never going to use up all of that space. You know, probably port numbers were the same way. You know, you don't, don't you think, how many ports do we really need? Of course, we famously, we have 64K ports because we have two bytes. And we have 30, we have 4.3 billion IP addresses because we have four bytes, 32 bits. So again, they, they, they designed for the future, even though they didn't know what the future was going to be which, I mean, that's the mark of an engineer. Um, they, they made some simple divisions of this space. Again, in, in, in 
in understanding the challenge of routing, and that's this is why this is important, they said, let's define different kind of lumps. We'll have class A networks that will be 16 million IPs. And now, you know, that they were laughing again. That that meant essentially 16 million is 24 bits. So what that would mean is if you think about 24 is 3 bytes, 3 times 8, that would mean that the first byte would be the identity of the whole class A network. That is all networks beginning with one and then anything in the other three bytes would be the one class A network. And then if the first byte was a two, that would be the two class A network. And there historically there are have there have been probably still are. I think HP is like 14. They they still because HP was in there very early they're the 14 network. They've got all of the IPs beginning with 14. Nobody else has an IP beginning with 14, and HP has all of them beginning with 14, a Class A network. But since you only have a byte, that means w- w- there are some limits too because zero is reserved and 255 is reserved sort of at the end points. So uh, 253 out of the two or 254 out of the 256 possible. And there, there are some other ones like 127 is famously also reserved and 10, for example, uh, the 10 network we all know is a, that whole class A block is a private network. In fact, my IPs are all 10 dot here. Um, I guess it was just easy when I set things up. Um, so, so what that means is that there is no public IP beginning with 10. That's all we, that, that whole block has been reserved for use in, inside private networks. It's a so-called non-routable class A network. But, but the point is there are only, there are very few of those, only, only so many combinations of that first byte. So again, these guys said, okay, well, we'll have some class A networks, but we also want some class B networks. That is, not everybody needs 16 million IPs. A lot of people who are smaller could get by with 64K IPs. That is, two bytes worth of IPs rather than three bytes. So that's a class B network where you have the first two bytes is the network number. And then the second two bytes, the lower two bytes the right-hand two bytes, is which IP within that network. So now rather than having like everything in 14 network is HP, now you have things like the 24 class A, the, the, the first byte is 24, and then the second byte is, is which one of the 24 sub-networks is a is, is you're you're talking about as a class B, um, and so so you have many of the first bytes, and then all of the values in the second byte, creating class B networks. And then they went one step further, and they said, and 
for really small networks, let's divide the B, you know, the class B networks into class C networks, where a single class B could be 255 class Cs, meaning that the first three bytes are the network number, and then the last byte is, you know, 1 to 254 is the machine within that network. So a class C network can have, you know, uh, 254 different machines in it. So they set these, these scales. Well, now, here's what's brilliant about that from a routing standpoint. The, the routers on the Internet, out on the net, what, what is necessary for them is to know, to have a destination for every single IP address. That is, if any packet with any of those potentially 4.3 billion IPs arrives at a router, the router has to know where to send it. It's got to have a destination network. And and if HP had all 14, had, had its class A network all beginning with 14, then because of this hierarchy, because of the the, the concept of networks containing networks, any packet that arrived at a router that where the first byte was 14, the router didn't even have to look at the other bytes. It said, ah, 14 is HP. Send it to HP. And back then, HP was was a you know a, <laughs> much smaller than it is today located somewhere on the peninsula in northern california and the bytes all went in that direction so so my point is that the this notion of of networks contain of networks and machines within a network that dramatically simplified the job of the routing tables the routing tables imagine if you if there wasn't that kind of aggregation every router would have i mean if it was just completely randomly assigned every router would have to have 4.3 billion entries well it i mean it it couldn't but it would have to because every single ip would then be looked up to find out where it should go and so so that gives you a sense for the power of this, of this, this notion of a of a network. The network bytes at the high end of the of the addressing space, and then those specific machines at the low end. Because of this of this division, routing tables could be vastly smaller and much simpler. Now, what began to happen? as the internet became popular is it became the case that that companies were or or, or that the 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 organizations uh, Aaron and the various internet registries 
started realizing that they needed to be, they needed to more closely match the IP allocations given to companies to the company size. That is, the, here was the problem. If you, if you were bigger than a class C network of 254 machines, well, then they'd have to give you a class B. But that was sixty-four thousand machines, and and so the problem there were there was no there was no other uh, easy granularity. So um, it would be possible to to give someone two class C's, but what they ended up with was something called CIDR, C-I-D-R, which is classless interdomain routing. Essentially, what happened in I think it was in ninety-seven. Uh, in the mid '90s, was this A, B, and C distinction was broken, was deliberately dissolved, so that instead of there being only byte-size boundaries, the 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 routing architecture was enhanced so that the 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 boundary between what is the network number and the machine number could then fall anywhere within the 32-bit space, meaning that this was classless. There were no more A, B, and C. It was, well, they're, they're, they're limited to powers of two so that you would go from, for example, 256 with, um, in what was used to be a class C. You could slide the boundary one bit over to the left and get 512, or one bit again and get 1024, or one bit again and so forth to to double the size of your network rather than going to 256 times the size of the network. Well, as all of this happened, routing tables grew. The, the, The architecture of routing pretty much held together. That is... Um, an ISP would would have a block of IPs, and it would have then it would have lots of customers within its address space using those IPs, and it would have entries in every router out on the internet for its network, so that every router on the internet. When an IP came in that matched the, the, the network number of this large ISP, that router would know which interface, which connection to send that packet to. And so that packet would bounce from router to router until it got to that ISP's network. Well, the... Um, the um, the allocation of IP addresses uh, is done through something known as anonymous systems, AS numbers, ASNs, anonymous system numbers. And, and every entity on the Internet that, that is given a block of IPs receives an anonymous system number. Those used to be 16 bits long, but that's another thing that we outgrew. So that for some number of years now, they've they've been 32 bits long. 
because we, we, we just we outgrew the total number of entities that wanted a block of IPs. I remember when I was first getting serious about networking, Mark Thompson of Analog X fame um, suggested that I register for an AS, that, that I get an anonymous system designation. And what that would have meant was I would have received a block of 256 IPs uh, from from Aaron, and they would they would be my they would be Gibson Research's IPs, um, and what's significant is that they would never change. That is, I could carry those with me wherever I went. Um, it it never seemed like that was something that I needed. I never pursued that. But as a consequence, I don't own my IPs. When I was with Vario, I had a, a block of IPs with Vario. I was briefly with XO. I changed IPs to when I was in, within XO's umbrella, essentially borrowing their I, from their IP space. And now I'm with level three with a chunk of of. IPs that level three has. So I'm, I've always been using the IPs of the ISP I'm in, but many larger organizations don't. They, they did what I could have done. Um, and that is applied for IP space and got it. So they are an anonymous system with an allocation of IPs, which are portable meaning that they those never change and as they move those IPs go with them so what that means is and this is this is part of what has happened over time which has caused a fragmenting of this otherwise sort of perfect routing um one thing that's happened is that they uh, that this the 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 invention of cider the classless interdomain routing has allowed allocations in smaller pieces. But, but as those allocations were given anonymous system designations, and as those anonymous systems moved to other providers, suddenly when, when a block that was under a given network's umbrella and thereby could be routed with a single routing table entry... When that block moves somewhere else, now it can no longer be routed with with within its within that umbrella routing entry that gets the packets into that data center. It needs its own entry in the route in the in every router on the internet, saying, "Whoops, here's an exception." To this, uh, to the otherwise this big block of IPs, here's an exception to that. And for this smaller block, you got to send it over there. Now, the way the routing table work again, it's a, a brilliant concept. Is they perform what's called a longest prefix match. The prefix is those those bits on the front from the left end which specify which network the packet goes to. And so the idea is, when you think about it, if, if a short prefix 
isn't very specific. That is, there may, may be many networks that begin with 24, and then it's the next byte which specifies, like, which, what used to be a class B network, it's more specific. And if you match all three bytes, the first three bytes, then you're really more specific. Down Now you're down to one of 256 machines in, a, in what used to be a class C network. So the, the, the longer the match of the prefix, the more specific you get. And so what the, router, what the routers do is they look at a, a, an IP address of a packet coming in and they, within their table, they find the longest routing table entry that matches and that tells them where to send the packet. So the what you what what we want in te, in 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 order to minimize the total number of entries in the global routing table is what's called aggregation that is we want a large isp to that has within its umbrella many smaller networks we want that isp to to not to talk, not to broadcast or in 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 routing terms to advertise all of those networks because it's needless there's if all of those little networks subnetworks within a large isp are going to the same isp don't don't send or advertise them all separately on the internet instead just have one entry that 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 because they're essentially that that encompasses them all so that the data can get to the isp and then the isp can privately route them where it needs to so but the problem is to the degree that that aggregation of smaller networks is not possible we need individual entries in all the routers on the internet in so-called the global routing table and it's as i said it's when anonymous system of anonymous systems that own blocks disaggregate from from the original block provider that it's then necessary to put an exception essentially in the table saying, whoops, uh, sorry, here's a longer prefix match for this particular guy, send it over here. So over time, as, as we, we've talked about the whole IPv4 space depletion problem, over time, the number of IPs, as we know, has grown and grown, IPv4 has grown and grown and grown and is now we're we're now at a problem where we're running out of IPs. This has created not only IP growth, but 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 in fact one of one 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 of the contributors is that that for a long time there was there were class A size networks unused. When we first talked about Hamachi, they were using the five dot network because it was unroutable. It would have never been allocated. Nobody owned any five dot IPs. So, and it was very clever for, for, for them to use that. But we then decided, whoops, we need to start using these IPs. But the problem was 
as we began using, for example, the five-dot network, we were chopping it up in small pieces. No longer were we, were we going to give huge allocations to people just because no one, no one was ever going to be able to use all these IPs. We knew that was no longer true. So right off the bat, the over the last few years, all of the remaining unused space has generally been chopped up into smaller pieces than it was historically. So each of those and those different pieces went to different people, different anonymous systems. So they all needed their own entries in the global routing tables. Um, so so there, it's been a combination of the way the net evolved, the 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 tendency to allocate more smaller pieces as we began to run out of space, and then just the the churn of 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 motion of chunks of space disaggregating so that it couldn't be routed under a single umbrella um, and, and, and brought into a, a local domain where it could then be routed privately. But, it, but, but it essentially, the, what used to be private routing had to be pushed out into the public because of disaggregation. As a consequence of those things, we have been approaching a point where some routers have a problem. There, is, there are a class of older Cisco brand routers. Uh, they are um, they're catalyst routers. I had the model number, I thought, here, but I don't see it in my notes. Oh, yeah, the, the, the 7600 series routers, which are known as the Catalyst 6500s. They have a capacity of a million entries, yet the default is set to 512,000. So 512,000. In the notes here, I show today's global routing tables, how many entries there are. Now, not er not every global router has exactly the same number of entries because in some cases, they've got a lot of local network or networks which are local to them. So they don't need entries for their routers for their own networks, but other people need entries for those networks. So the actual number of entries varies from router to router, but they're right around 500,000. Generally, about 500,000 is where we are. Last Tuesday, something happened, which put, which suddenly pushed the and, and we, we, we've traditionally seen continuous but rather slow growth. Last Tuesday, an event occurred, and something pushed the global number of routing entries over the default setting for that particular older Cisco router, which could only handle 512,000. We're at 500 now, normally. We're actually back to 500 now. It was just actually a mistake that was made by Verizon's autonomous systems they're ASNs 701 and 705. They, they um, 
aggregate a a large chunk of routes. They have seven two dot six nine, and every and then all of the all of the networks underneath. So so that's a class what used to be a class B size seven two dot six nine. What happened was they by mistake they pushed their sub routes out onto the public internet. They disaggregated what they would normally be routing privately. They pushed them out publicly. A hundred and seventy um, additional routes appeared, and um, that caused the number of 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 routing table entries to to go above the number that, that that particular Cisco router could handle, and all just in spotty fashion all over the internet, the those particular Cisco routers stopped being able to route. There, there's something called wow. uh, TCAM, um, which is a is it TCAM? Yeah, TCAM. It, it is an so is a very fast associative memory, a content addressable um, associative memory technology, which allows these routers to essentially do incredibly fast, uh, like line speed lookup in order to to process these tables. And um, that is is the it, it, it is settable, but the default is 512 with this mistake that Verizon made for a few hours last week the router the, the the entries went to 515 and when that happened when those tables overflowed the routers fell back to software lookup which is vastly slower than hardware based virtually instantaneous lookup and that's essentially what happened so and Verizon we're, immediately we're, blamed Netflix for the whole thing <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Yeah. So Verizon realized they made a mistake. It wasn't their intention. It was just a, you know, a, a, a plumbing screw up where they published all these 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 routes publicly that they have they intended to keep private. And that 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 ballooned the routing tables. The routers sent all of these new routes out. Many of them, unfortunately, couldn't handle it. And so it created, you know, spotty outages, weird sort of effect throughout the Internet where some people couldn't get to places and some people could. And then, you know, as soon as those routes were removed and, and the, the network sort of healed itself and went back to being OK. Now, Cisco anticipated this a few months ago in May. They sent out a notice to everyone who's got these routers they know of saying, hey, you know, the global routing tables are approaching the default limit for these routers. What's interesting is IPv6 entries take two slots, whereas IPv4 takes one slot. So right now, the routers have a capacity of a million entries. About half of them, 512,000, are allocated there's there there's like a a, um, a a divider which divides that total space into IPv4 and IPv6. So 
512 entries of IPv4. And because IPv6 takes twice as many, it takes two slots essentially for its larger, its larger 128-bit address, um, the, the, those routers can handle uh, 256,000 IPv6 entries. Right now, the IPv6 table is only about 10,000 entries long. So what, what I hopefully, what the people who have these routers last week realized their, their routing tables overflowed, all they have to do is just change the configuration maybe to 768, for example, since IPv6 is still, the, the, uh, the global IPv6 table is still so small that, that that threshold can be moved from the half point to the three-quarters point. That'll give plenty of breathing room for IPv4 growth, and really IPv4 can't grow much more. We're hitting the ceiling there, although it could continue to disaggregate, and so there could still be, even when we stop allocating new space, as chunks of IPv4 break apart and need their own table entries, they'll they'll consume additional table space in the global routing table, but it's looking like we've got plenty of time for IPv6, and Hopefully, we'll have less of a problem with IPv6 since its network, since it's got, you know, massively large network space, there shouldn't be nearly the same kind of disaggregation problem uh, nearly as quickly for IPv6. So that's what's going on with uh, the outage that we had last week and uh, some really cool information, I think, about the global uh, internet routing and how it works. I'm just glad to know we can blame Verizon for the whole thing. Uh, <laughs> there, there's a silver lining. <laughs> the only way it'd be better if I could blame Comcast. <laughs> wow. No, of course they didn't do it on purpose. It's a simple error, and uh, it's oh, really a, it's, uh, it was going to happen sometime. Yes, it was as we've been creeping near this. I mean, actually, this is better that it happened this way. That that it was like a little. A little balloon that that was a mistake that that, that was then able to be fixed because if, if this was the actual organic growth that truly hit five twelve thousand for the first time, there'd have been Oof. no there would have been no fix yeah. in an hour. That's a good I point. Mean, yeah, yeah. You need so, all those so this dresses. was like yeah. this is a perfect little a little wake up call for those people who realize oops we need to take that note we got from Cisco in May a little more seriously. Yeah. Is it a simple upgrade? Yeah, it's just a matter of changing a number in a config it's a firm, file. It's a firmware. Oh, it's not even that. Yeah, it, no, it's not even that. It's, it's just, file. it's just it, the the default is five twelve thousand. So there's if enough RAM. It's not that the hardware can't handle. It's just a config. correct, it's correct. A you simply you simply chain. You you actually if you don't have an entry, it divides your memory in half. IPv4 and IPv6. Ah. And so all okay. I have to do is add an entry to say I want it not half and half, but right. three quarters, one quarter, right. and then you're good. You're you're, you're fine. Really, while. really interesting. Yeah, fascinating, fascinating stuff. Steve, as always, you're great. We have a, a visitor from Finland. He's a, a security guy for uh, Microsoft Nokia. He does PK, PKI implementations. Uh, cool. Who has in here and uh, or Yuha? Not. <laughs> 
<laughs> you hot? You hot means something. <laughs> Maybe that didn't translate, Leo. Yeah, I think it's finished. You just wouldn't understand. <laughs> anyway, he's a big fan, enjoys the show. So, uh, and oh, he's, great. He's nodding along as you're talking, so I know we're all right. Cool. Thank you, Steve. Uh, you can go to grc.com. That's where Steve hangs his hat for SpinRight. Now that we know how it works, the world's best hard drive maintenance. Eh, you can do a little recovery with it, too. Utility. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, you also will find lots of free stuff. His work on Squirrel is ongoing there. And next week, if God and the Internet permit, we will have a Q&A. <laughs> And there's no meltdown, nothing, which is getting increasingly more difficult to uh, it, assume. Yeah. Uh, so go and post your questions there about anything you hear, including the stuff we talked about today. Uh, that's grc.com slash feedback. Don't email them. It, you got to use that form. Um, you can also find 16 kilobit versions of this show for the bandwidth impaired. Beautifully written transcriptions by Elaine Ferris um, and all sorts of other stuff. grc.com. And the show notes this week with a bit of a freaky picture of yeah. uh, Leo and Steve. Get the show notes. And, and uh, Tama, sorry, Tama Hall has tweeted it. I retweeted it. So it's on the Twitter as well. Great. On the Twitter, you'll find Steve at, at SGGRC. And, Thanks, uh, my friend. That's all there is to say. Thank you, Steve. There is. Talk to you next week. See you next week on Security Now. Bye.